1: Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money, coming to you live from Newcastle. First live event. Yes, they are a rowdy bunch. The bar is open, the tab is wide open. And we're coming to you live from the Herb Distilling Co, which is a gin distillery. And I'm here with Shell Johnson. Hey Shell. Hey, hey. You ready to um, have a chat about all things careers?
2: I thought you were about to say, are you ready to rumble? Are
1: you ready to rumble? <laughs> yeah. So this is our live book launch sort your career out and make more money, the book is now available. It is now live and you can get these books wherever good books are sold. We're going to answer a heap of career questions here tonight and have a bit of fun along the way. You guys ready to launch with us? Okay, live from Newcastle, our first question is from James. James, welcome. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for coming. Great to be here. Uh, My question is strategies to prepare for a significant pay cut after changing from a 10 plus year career in one industry to a completely different one. I'm an engineer and I'm actually studying to be a financial planner at the moment. So, that's my career change. Awesome. So, Shell, do you have any advice for James?
2: Yeah. Uh, So, there's obviously financial factors, which I will let Glenn speak to in a moment. But a couple of things, James, that I would encourage you to do. The first thing is to get connected with a a few people who are financial planners or people in that industry. So one example would be Phil Thompson, who's here tonight, who has done a career change, which we talk about in this book. But I think the thing with career changes that we need to be aware of is that those career changes might take a few years to come about. So have a long game view of it. Don't think about it as a, it's an immediate change, I need to cut and dry. You can actually start, if you start to volunteer, now I know volunteering is like seen as a no-no. I really disagree with that. I think that idea of, oh, don't volunteer, like you have to get paid for everything you do. If you're able to commit, James, to a three-month investment with a business that you potentially volunteer three hours a week... With a financial planning business while retaining your full-time job as an engineer and you actually stage that out you can make that transition a lot smoother but you can also make it so that you're not necessarily having as big a drop because you've started to build up the level of experience that otherwise you wouldn't have and this is one thing for anyone who's thinking about a career change often we think when we're making a career change we're going back to the starting line, we're going back to kind of ground... Is it ground zero? Sure. Ground zero. And you actually have a heap of skills that are transferable, even if you're in a different industry. So there'll be things that you do as an engineer, like the level of attention to detail, the level of process that you follow that are transferable skills because anyone in financial planning knows that it's detail and compliance... Amen. (laughs) Yeah, just groans (laughs) and just like... Um, So remember that you actually have transferable skills and be confident in how you sell those at an interview. So you're not going back to ground zero. Again, I don't know if that's the expression. You're actually starting from a level of skill. You just have to show how those things that transfer. Do you want to talk about the financial side?
1: Yeah, so I, I think the reason this is exactly why I wanted to write this book with Shell before sort your money out and get invested because it is about making sure that your career is strong and is stable so that's why in the in the career book I did talk about the sound financial house because if you have sound solid financial foundations it will make a career pivot less financially stressful so realistically I I don't know your exact situation but if an engineer is on 150 180 grand in Newcastle financial advisor, first year, professional year, going back, you might go back to 80 to 90 for the interim. So you might have a 70 grand-ish hole that you need to cover. You can either do that with savings, you can do it by living lean and frugal. I mean, it's hard, but this is what I would also say, choose your hard, staying in a career field that you don't love is hard. Changing careers into a new field taking a pay cut is also hard. Both are hard. Choose your hard. So I would be choosing a hard that will not last for as long. Careers are a long thing. I don't want a hard for the next 40 years. I want a hard for a next...
2: It does sound inappropriate. But...
1: For the next short term. All right, let's get Cass up. Come down, Cass. All right, you guys. Reset. Okay, next up we've got Cassie. She knows her question, Shell. She doesn't need to read it.
2: No. My question is how to work on setting healthy boundaries in the workplace. Mainly, as my example, from an employer side of thing, as an employee, how to establish clear boundary lines for communications outside of business hours. Ooh. Ooh. That's a good one. Thank you. Yep. You don't want to leave your boss on red, do you? But sometimes we need to. So, boundaries, Cassie, this is a really good question. And healthy boundaries, it's a really funny thing. Like, I think boundaries are really sexy. Like, I'm really into them.
1: You and Sam (laughs) have a good marriage?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness me. Yeah, we're going there. So, boundaries uh it's really interesting because when we think about those dynamics with our boss let's say your boss is contacting you on a Saturday and you're really trying to switch off and it causes you and some of the things that it can cause you it might just be annoying but for some people it can cause that feeling of anxiety like you never get to switch off you actually never get the space to have downtime so one of the things that and I know I say this all the time on our podcast but we have to have conversations Like the first thing we need to do is to have conversations about our boundaries. And the way we do that, we have to first think the deep work we do before the conversation is work out what are the things that are non-negotiable for you. So for me, it might be that, uh, oh, actually, this is not true. But like, if I wanted to exercise every day, well, that's, (laughs) like, uh, like I don't. I'll think about another example. Let's say I want to make sure that I am able to pick my daughter up from school at three o'clock. So that will become a non-negotiable. And what that means is things that come in around that, that try to take your time, you actually have to work out what am I saying yes to? Like when I answer my boss on the weekend, I'm saying yes to them at the expense of something else. So when I think about boundaries, we often think about, oh, we don't want to say no. Like we don't actually want to say no to our boss or we don't want to say no to a team member because we're like, oh, this is, this is me not being helpful or the people pleaser in us rises its ugly head. And what we need to learn is, okay, how do we actually reframe that and go, boundaries is actually about what you're saying yes to. So when you set a boundary, you're saying, if I set a boundary to not work on the weekend, it's because I'm saying yes to my family time. If I set a boundary, to not stay up and, and work till 11 o'clock, it's because I'm saying yes to having a good night's sleep and that actually helps me be more productive. So we have to think about that and then we have to start having the conversations. And so one of the things that we need to raise with them is, hey, when you message me outside hours, do you expect me to respond to you? Like actually ask that question because sometimes they don't. So do you expect me to respond to you? If yes, okay that's really different to my expectation. My expectation is that on the weekends that I would not have to work because I'm not being paid.
1: Yeah, I... Look, I think, Shell's spot on, I want to go on the other edge of the the sword that Shell talked about. On page 143 of the book, for those who have got it uh, in their little hot hands already, or their hot little hands already, I think part of the boundary thing is it's on my my career risk spectrum and one of the things that I think is sometimes, and I'm not saying Cass, this is you, but sometimes these things are confidence issues and people think it's a risk and one of them in the lower band is voicing concerns with your team. So if you think that there are some boundaries that are overstepped, I think that career muscle and working on the, hey, and I did talk about in the part of the negotiation section, I stole a bit from a book called, uh, never split the difference. And it was a negotiator. He talked about labeling things. Maybe you could say to the team, like, Hey, it seems that I'm getting all these emails after hours. What is the expectation? As Shell said, and just don't put it onto you. Like, why are you emailing me? I'll put it back to this labeling the situation. I'm seeing that I'm getting emails. I might be kayaking one day and won't be able to get back to you. Can you set some realistic expectations? And just to give our good friend Shane a plug on the podcast, grab that microphone, grab the one on the floor. This is Shane Hatton. Hello. Um, Shane, you said something really great on the My Millennial Money podcast a couple of weeks ago, it was a Thursday. Did anyone hear the episode with Shane? Yeah, a few people. About expectations your expectation?
3: Yeah, so most of it, if you think back to any kind of disappointment, frustration, tension that you've ever had in your life, my guess is it was because there was a misalignment of expectations. So I, w- I expected you to do something, it didn't happen. You expected something of me and it didn't happen. So there was a misalignment. And so the best way to do that is start to actually ask the question, what do you expect of me? what do i expect of you and what does the organization expect of us and i think right in the center of all three of those is a set of shared expectations and when you answer those shared expectations it'll bring to so life
1: i like digging down on topics so realistically <laughs> <laughs> what go with me um, it's not a boundary issue potentially in some workplaces it's an expectation misalignment
3: Yeah, it's a communication issue. I think most of our biggest challenges are communication issues and they can be resolved with communication. Mm. So it's most of the time it's, I have an expectation of you that I've never voiced and it's an unspoken expectation. And so the best thing you can do is just make it explicit. Um, It's great when you say to your boss, hey, do you expect this of me? Exactly what you were saying before, Shell? And they say, no, I don't. And so you've been carrying an expectation that you thought was an expectation. But if they say yes, now we get to ask, is this a helpful expectation? And if it's not, how do we reframe it to become a more helpful expectation
1: for the two of us? Awesome. Give Shane a hand, yes. everyone. So Shane.
2: Shane's book, Let's Talk Culture. Everyone should buy it. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, we will. All right. Next question. What have we got?
1: Uh, John Tulcher.
2: John, do you come want to on calm down. down? John? Give John a hand.
3: The question I'll make up on the spot should I change jobs now to secure a pay rise or over the next 12 months,
1: should I pursue internal growth where I currently work? Ooh, that's a banger, that one. Shell.
2: um, Yeah, it's a really good question. One of the quickest ways to get more money is to change from job to job because you could go from somewhere you are right now and you could go and apply for a job and it comes with a 20% increase. So what we often see is this lure... Is that the right word? Lure. Lure. To, lure to go and, and get this new job because it comes with this dollar sign that looks really cool. The risk is when we make decisions in isolation from all the other facts, we can often make a bad call. So if I was in that position where I've got this job offer from another company, it comes with a 10, 20% pay rise, that looks really attractive on paper, but so much of your work is more than the contract. So the contract might look nice and and shiny, but actually what's the environment like? What are the future opportunities like? Because you might get a 20% pay rise and be stuck on that pay level for four or five years. Whereas where you're at right now might not have a pay increase in your current role, but they may have promotional opportunities that actually come with a 30, even 40% increase. So what we need to do... Gosh, I feel like I repeat myself so much. I'm sorry, but we need to have the conversation. So the first thing I'd be doing if I was in that position, John, is to go back to my manager, go back to my boss and say, this is my goal. My goal for my career is that I would get into this role, whatever that role is, and that I'd love to be actually earning this much. So actually have that chat. And you don't have to say, my my goal is this and I want it now. Because that's the problem when employees come and every business owner will will know this. When employees come to you and they say, I want this and I want it now. Well, that is really difficult to facilitate. But if we actually have a conversation and say, hey, boss, I want this in the long term. Is this something that's available to me here? Once you know that, then you can actually make those decisions. If there's opportunities, we can go, yeah, cool. Actually, I'd like to stay here because I know the culture's healthy and I know it's a good vibe and I know the role and opportunities are awesome. Or if that's not available, then you can make a wise decision.
1: Hear, yeah. hear. Um, for those... actually John, as you said that, I thought that sounds kind of familiar. In the risk section in the book, I did a little case study on a similar thing. And for those who have their, their books on them, page 141, um, it's in the section creating a risk because you didn't consider the known unknowns and I'll read just the first paragraph of the scenario. Let's look at a scenario. You were headhunted for a job that is closer to home in the same industry and pays 15% more than you are currently on. It's very similar to your current role, so you know what's involved. Your strength and skills meet all the requirements, which means you're confident you have what it takes to succeed. And I'm, because it's in the risks uh, section, I talk about risk of rejection. There is also no risk of rejection because they approached you about the job. So there's a lot of boxes ticked. And I think what I'm getting at here, you could chase the dollars, quote unquote, and end up at a workplace that has more dollars, but it's a really crap culture and it's toxic and they don't have good values. So you've taken a risk of the known unknowns. And the question I would say is, Is it worth it? (laughs) And I I can't answer that, but I think you just have to, in your career, be very clear about... let's let's back that up. When I left my job in Sydney to start my own business, my boss at the time said two things to me, and it has never failed me, and particularly as a small business owner. He said, remember two things. Don't chase the dollars and always look after people. So I really think if you are in your career sweet spot and it is a good thing and it goes to like culture as well. Like if you're in a a workplace where the management or the bosses say crap and three months later, it doesn't happen. And then they keep kicking the can down the road. I'm probably out of there at some point. But if it is a good place, there is room to grow. I would probably hang around there and not go after the short term gain. But it's all circumstantial. Can't wreck it.
4: Well, might a little bit.
1: Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this.
4: If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help.
1: or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/Wondersuite. Okay, next question.
5: All right,
1: give Tess a hand, everyone.
5: Um, So my question is I guess best tips around managing imposter syndrome. So I guess working within a role um, where I feel really fulfilled in an organization where I feel valued, really good vibe, good management, really amazing people that I work with Um, and I guess there's opportunities to work within the same organization just within a different I guess area so niching into um, I work as a dietitian to give context so working as a dietitian working with eating disorders for example um, which is seen as a very specialist area Um, and I've got a bit of experience working within that field now um, and I've had you know some positive feedback from supervisors and management and there you know there's opportunities that can come that will come up Um, so I'm just thinking yeah how do you kind of overcome that internal you know, battle around, well, am I the right person for this or am I the best person for this position?
1: Awesome. Give uh, Tess a hand, everyone. (laughs) Thanks, Tess. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it's a really good point around imposter syndrome. I think everyone has experienced this at some point. For me, there's a couple of things. So the first one, and I think it's Adam Grant who talks about this in his book, Think Again. He describes this idea of how do you look at imposter syndrome not as something that is a bad thing, but it's actually something that encourages you to learn. So when we see imposter syndrome as the thing of, you know what, I'm gonna use that as fuel to learn and grow and actually increase my own skill set, rather than see it as a thing of, I'm not, I, I'm, I've got imposter syndrome and I can't do all this stuff. Actually use it as a growth opportunity. And for me, one of the sense checks around decisions in your career is does this thing that I'm wanting to do equally excite and terrify me like does it have that sense of excitement but you're kind of freaking out a bit and if it's got that it's probably a good indicator that it's a really good growth opportunity and Whitney Johnson in her one of her books and research she talks about when we're our best performing as a as an employee, when we're at our peak performance is when we're in a huge growth curve. So when we're actually in that space where we feel uncomfortable, we feel challenged, we're actually more engaged at work, we have, we increase our performance. So if you are in that space right now where you're like, this is kind of scary, but I'm I'm learning heaps, that's an awesome spot to be in. If you're over that and you're like fully mastered your job you are at risk of getting bored and that's actually when performance drops off. So if you've fully mastered every part of your job, you're at risk of underperforming more so than the person who feels inexperienced but they're on a growth journey. So I like to look at it in that way because it actually helps you to see, I have value to add, I'm in a growth zone and this is when I'm going to do my best work.
1: Anya, I think uh, for you specifically, Tess, probably well overqualified for the role and you just got to get at it because if you don't, someone else will and you're the best person for it. Uh, but has anyone here felt that they're not good at what they do or anyone suffered imposter syndrome? You yeah, a few hands not going up. If your hand didn't go up, you're probably a psychopath. <laughs> Looking at you, mum and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> but I actually shared in the book... A story, because I wanted to touch on imposter syndrome. Uh, I think it was in the mindset chapter. And I actually had it, the last acute time that I had it was after our, uh, one of our events last year. And I was just like, at the end of the event, I was just like, oh my gosh, what a train wreck and all this stuff. And you get stuck in your head, right? Like it was really bad. But what I had to do, I had to actually look at the facts, not at the emotions. So for me, it was like people actually paid to come to a live event. They didn't have to. It wasn't a prison. Um, a <laughs> little bit, a little bit of prison. <laughs> um, you can
2: leave at any time. <laughs> you can leave at any time.
1: Uh, people stayed around at the end to, like, want to get photos and meet the team and say hi. Like, I know, I am qualified. I've done over 10,000 hours in my craft or whatever. And then, so for me, what I do personally, and I'd encourage everyone to try and do any life hacks, for me around these live events and stuff, I get it really bad as well because I'm just a guy, like I've had a bit of experience, but I'm not above anything. So what I did with the, my own hack to get out of my own head was before the live events, I would have a, a shower or a bath or something to really get out of my head into my body. Because I went to a psychologist once and he's like, if you ever feel a bit disassociated, just rub the chair. <laughs> like, <laughs> ground yourself. Like, get out of your head into your body. All right?
2: <laughs> okay, so that's one, <laughs> really, that's is, one really practical takeaway yeah, we I can I don't have know like, tonight. <laughs> I think it's human.
1: It's human. And I don't know if there's actually an example or, like, an actual way forward other than you've got to get out of your own head look at the facts <laughs> over the emotions. And rub that chair. (laughs) Get out of your head. Did anyone want to do a... Oh, yeah, come down. Sorry. Thanks, Ellen.
2: No worries at all. I just wanted to ask, what's the best way to approach your current manager for a reference when you're looking for other opportunities? Oh, yeah, this is a good one. (gasps) So
0: particularly in government or
2: tertiary education roles, they often ask for your current line manager's reference when you're applying. Um, rather than someone who's previously managed you. And just how do you approach that conversation?
1: With great difficulty. Give her a hand, everyone.
2: (laughs) I'm looking over into the audience at someone who does work in a local government role wondering about this because I don't have experience in local government. Sam, can people put, if they're filling out on a careers website, do they have to put their line manager on there? Okay, that's awesome. So Sam just said, have the conversation with your manager so it's not a surprise because that's, no manager wants to be surprised by that. But if you're in a relationship, so not every boss is good, right? We've all worked for bad bosses. Um, so if you have a bad boss and you feel like it's actually not safe psychologically to have that conversation, then do exactly what Sam said, which is... Put down references available on request and if you have to fill out the form, put 0000. I don't know how to fill it out, but you'll figure out a way or email the hiring manager and actually say, hey, look, I'd love to provide my references at a later date. Is this possible at a later stage? And most recruiters will be like, yep, no worries. Problem solved. Yeah,
1: I think a lot of like the career stuff, like when you are doing these clinical applications as in autofill and whatnot, if you can bring the human element to it, Get on the phone with a recruiter and just try and preempt it. Say, hey, I can't actually provide that yet because I don't want them to know I'm looking. Uh, I just think a bit of.
2: And you can provide someone else from the workplace in that form. So you could provide someone else as a substitute.
1: Yeah, it's like, hey, what do you do? I'm the school janitor. (laughs) 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 She's great. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so yeah. some quality advice right there, Ellen. <laughs> some key takeaways Thanks, tonight. Ellen. All right, well, hey, thanks for hanging out. And if you enjoy this show, give us a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. And also our book is on sale. Sort your career out and make more money wherever you get your books.
1: And we'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you, Newcastle, coming out tonight. <clears throat> it's been real.
2: Thank you.
6: Hi everyone. How are you going? Good Good to see your beautiful faces. My name's Jess. I'm the content producer at Simo and I had the honour of helping these guys, working alongside them as they wrote the book. Sweating blood and tears over this book. It took a lot, a lot of time and they've done an amazing job. I learnt heaps about careers. Sorry, thank you. We know everything about the book but you guys don't. So I'm going to ask these guys some questions to crack it open a little bit. Are we cool for that? Let's do it. Shell, I'm going to ask you first, why did you personally write this book?
2: So this book came out of my own career crisis. So you will hear this story in the book, but we started this process, I quit my job without another job to go to. I was working this job and I thought, this isn't right for me. I don't know what I want to do, but I know I can't stay here. And I finished that job. And I remember I was in Sydney. I just finished up an actual gig that I was working in. Finished up, called Glenn. And I was like, hey, I've just quit my job. And he's like, oh yeah, what are you going to do now? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'll figure it out, I'm sure. I'll wing it. I might freelance, do some random stuff. And Glenn's like, classic Glenn James. I've got an idea. <laughs> Let's write a career book. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm totally unemployed. Like I do not have a job. How could I write a career book when I don't have a job? But one of the things we learned through this process was often we get into career crisis when we haven't done that deep thinking about the work that we do. And I think for every person here, and for every person who reads this book, the takeaway that, that we want is that people should do a job that they love, people should find a career that they love, not just work nine to five, and in order to go on a holiday. We want actually people to get meaning and purpose out of their job. And for me, that was a really um, painful lesson that I learned at that point in time. And so writing this book, I was the first beneficiary of this process of figuring out, okay, I'm in a career crisis, don't know what I wanna do with my life. And basically, we could have called it, like, sort your shit out. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that, maybe that can be our next book, right? But <laughs> that's, what, that's essentially what I did and what we're going to help people do in their work. Because you know what? Work is more than making money. Work is actually how we get to contribute and add value in the world and make an impact. And so this book is really doing that. I love that. How good is that?
6: Oh, it's so good. Seriously. In the first chapter of the book, you write a lot about um, kind of this internal compass that we can turn to in those moments when people are going through career crisis because we all have them, right? Like it's very common now to people sitting in jobs going, I don't know if I just hate my boss or I just hate this job or I, am I in the wrong industry? Or we get a lot of people calling us who are like, I've got these two job offers. These are the offers. Which one do I take? And no one can tell you which job to take. And you talk about something in chapter one that can help people make those decisions. Can you share a bit about that?
2: Yeah, so this idea of values, our first chapter is really defining your values. So what are the things that are non-negotiable for you in life? What are those core things? And for me, really working that out and understanding that before you make career decisions is really important. So figuring out, okay, well, if I value autonomy, if that's a really important thing in my life and and career, and if that's important for me with my family, then that informs the kind of jobs that I'll take. That informs the kind of careers that I'll pursue. Or on the flip side, if I value fun and I'm working in a workplace that sucks the living daylights out of everything... And no workplaces are like that here, especially not SIMO. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: people so SIMO's the company that is my millennial money. If
2: sort your money, money out is yeah. what it stands for, SIMO. Anyway, no one everyone has fun at SIMO. <laughs> but I think if, figuring out your values before you make big decisions, often people just look to the external parts of their career. So we look at job titles. If I have a manager in my job title, or if I have a specialist in my job title, then I'm ticking the box. But instead, we need to think about those deep things first, which is actually, what do I want? Like, what do I actually want? Because the external parts of our career, like a job title or a salary figure, if I just hit 100K, I'm gonna be sweet. No, that's an external thing. So if we focus on those things, we actually end up in careers that don't energise us. But if we start with our values, what matters to us, what's important to us, and we let that guide the work and career we choose, then we can actually build a career we love.
6: It's so good. I really love that. And another, yeah, it's worth a clap. It's so good. That's the foundation for the whole book. And I read that chapter and I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, Cheryl, it's so good. The other thing that you hear a lot of people talk about is, oh, work in a job, you know, in a career or an industry that you're passionate about, something that you love, that gets talked about a lot. And I love that in the book, you actually challenge that a little bit and you have a slightly different angle on that. Can you share, I guess you wrote a whole chapter in which this idea of like the passion pit, you talk about the passion pit in the book. Can you share kind of what your perspective is on that?
2: Yeah. uh, So the passion pit It's actually not my concept. It's Cal Newport, who it's his concept around don't follow your passions. So he's really big on this idea and he's done a lot of research around following your passions. Okay, so I'm really passionate about fine dining. Like, I'm into it. Like, I am a fine diner, 100%. But could I ever cook a fine dining meal? Like, could you come over and I'd be like, yeah, cool. Like, I've prepared this. What do they do? Like tartare? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, like I've prepared this fine dining meal. No, and I think the thing, the essence of this is, just because you love something doesn't mean you'll actually be good at that or be energized by it. So I love fine dining. I love the experience of it. But would I make a good chef? Absolutely not. Would I make a good business owner of a hospitality business? Hundred percent not. I would die. So um, sorry to anyone in hospitality. It's amazing. It's seriously amazing. It's hard work, right? Um, not that I know. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so <laughs> the essence of, it, of that passion pick concept is don't follow your passions, find out what you're really good at. So for each, each of each people in this book, we talk about figuring out your strengths. And when you figure out your strengths, then you're able to craft your career around that. But often people don't know their strengths. Like we don't know what we're good at. We know what we're bad at. We're very good at figuring out what we're not good at. And instead what we need to do is figure out, hey, what is it that I do that's unique to me that I do better than anyone else and craft a career around those things because that's when you really stand out, you have an impact.
6: Oh, it's so good. I love that. (laughs) So good. The last thing I'm going to ask you about, Shell. Last thing. You talk a lot throughout the whole book about the concept of creating open communication between you and your manager. And if you're a manager, probably you and your team as well. Why is that so significant? How can people do it? It's not just one conversation you talk about. You talk about having continual ongoing chats, which are open and honest. Um, What are the benefits to those kinds of chats?
2: Yeah, it's massive. Who is a manager of people? Ah, there's heaps. Who's a business owner? And also heaps. Okay. So as managers, I'd love to actually have another show of hands. Do you know everything your employees want? No, we don't know and so I want every employee to hear that your manager doesn't know what you want like they actually don't know what you want unless you tell them so if you want to get something from your manager like let's say you want to eventually progress into a different role you want a promotion or you want a pay rise or you want to be developed in a certain area they're not going to know unless you tell them so Get over your fear of yourself and the awkwardness of having that conversation. Actually have it. Go and sit down with them. Book in time and say, I'd love to talk to you about my career. Because once they know, then they can help you facilitate that. And actually, most managers, if they're half decent, want to help you. But I think a lot of employees don't realise that. They don't see that their manager wants to help. But once you have the conversation, you actually open up doors that you never knew were possible.
6: So good. That's such a great takeaway from the book. Thank you, Cheryl. Glenn James. Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> For you personally, why did you write this book?
1: Um, I thought it'd be a cool thing to do because when we started the My Millennial Career podcast, when did we start that? 2020? 2020. I, doing the My Millennial Money main show, we used to, well, we still do see a lot of like trends that uh, our listeners are asking us and then... I had Shell and Emily on the podcast uh, in 2020 talking about jobs and careers. And then I really felt that for this current generation of people in their 20s or 30s, the career was going to be the big next big thing. So we started the career podcast. You know, they were crushing it. it they got in the finals of the podcast award, I think the second year of doing it. And I just saw this trend of career questions And that's why I I thought it'd be a good idea to write a career book because the amount of times that we get asked about um, career questions... Yeah, so that was happening. And then in the background, even when I was um, a financial advisor coaching and helping younger people and even interviewing them on the podcast, there was this underlying thing where people were like, oh, how do I invest in shares? How do I buy property? How do I do this? I'm like, well... You've told me two seconds ago that you don't like your job and you don't like your career. What about you set that up first? So it really is the prequel to the book, Sort Your Money Out, and that's how I wanted to position it. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of why I did it. I'm promoting it as the prequel and uh, the book to read first. So
6: Yeah, so good, so good. And <laughs>
1: I wanted to do another book launch because I didn't get to do one because the first book came out during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone not got a copy of this? Okay, F- first hand. You'll have to run down because I'm a, <laughs> the lady in the... Is it Elle? Hey. Um, L, yeah, yeah, there you go. And each household tonight will get a free copy of the new book. So
2: Grab them on your way out. Yeah. Hey, so get a free one and buy one for a friend. Yeah, so if you that's really weird. want to
1: help the event, not cost us lots of, lots of money. Because we're <laughs> uh, Yeah, so that's why I wrote the book. Because of prequel, all this stuff that I, I'm seeing online. And even in, like, for journalists, there is more questions coming up about careers. So it's a thing. Yeah. And we so- saw that with COVID, right? Like, everyone's like, I'm not going back to work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because I work from home now. So you wrote two
6: chapters about mindset. Not one, two. Why did you write two? Why is mindset so important? And what did you talk about in those chapters?
1: Um, Two chapters because 20,000 words over one chapter is too big of a chapter (laughs) in terms of um, publisher land. Uh, But the first chapter on mindset was basically my story about being transformed. Um, Has anyone read that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yeah, so this dude that I worked with in the city once, he changed the way I thought about everything and I wanted to share parts of that story. So the first chapter on mindset was my story and some examples of how I changed my mindset and then the second chapter is lots of practical things. So, yeah, it's pretty good. It's
6: good fun. You also yeah. wrote a bit about risk.
1: Yeah, yeah. so we, we wrote a lot about taking risks. Who likes taking risks? Yeah. So maybe a third of the crowd. When it comes to your career, the thing that I wanted to get across in the career book, with your career, asking to talk to your boss about a workplace issue or not uh, feeling guilty about taking a sick day or bringing something up with a coworker, a lot of us have felt that that stuff is risky and it's scary. But I want to illustrate that that stuff needs to become basic hygiene in your life. So it's okay to ask your employer to talk about an issue. That's not a risk and it feels like a risk, but it's not a risk. So that's what I wanted to get across.
6: The last thing I want to ask you about Glenn, cause you're obviously the money man, you're the My Millennial Money Man, And we know, based on our community census last year, that the second most important goal for listeners was to increase their income. And their careers is a massive way that they can do that. It's a really impactful way. And it's not just a pay rise, although that is significant. You talk about your advanced income quadrant. Can you explain what that's about?
1: Yeah, it sounds really cool. And I made it up, but it works. Uh, (laughs) So I talk about the four ways to actually make more money in your career that is above award-based roles. And we get a lot of people like, who's, John asked if you're an educator, who's an educator here or a nurse or works for a council? Yeah, so sometimes in some roles, you can't walk into the office and go, hey, I want a pay rise. And they're like, that's cute. Here's the manual. You're on level five, sorry. It becomes a career discussion, not a job discussion. And that's why, you know, not everyone wants to make more money. And I prefaced in the book that if you do want to increase your money above market norms, so I talk a lot about market forces. So, like, I got my head shaved in Melbourne the other day, almost had a stroke, it was $75. (laughs) I'm like, okay. But the market forces, that hairdresser or the barber can't turn around tomorrow and say oh, it's $150 of that because you're just not going to pay that. So that person in their career has to do something to not be a victim of market force, but to kind of be the force, you know? So, but I I really acknowledge that not everyone wants to conquer the world and earn lots and lots of money. And we talk about, um, I did a lot of cool graphs as well, had a lot of fun. Like as you're taking career risks, if this is like the, the risk graph, It might start low, you're starting your career, you're not taking many risks. Then we're, hello, hello, little (laughs) one. And then we're going up. And the more we take risks can lead to higher income, but the closer that your values are aligned to those risks, the higher the chance that it will be successful.
2: Yeah, so there's this really strong link between your values and your risk. So if I'm going to take a a a change careers, but I haven't gone back, because changing careers is a risk and anyone who's done it knows that, like Phil Thompson, who went from circus performing to a financial planner, took a risk, but his values aligned with that change. And so you have to link those two. They really integrate. So our decisions, and this is a really big thing. So I'm just going to emphasise this. When you're looking at your career... Often people make the mistake of making decisions in isolation. So they make, pay, they make a decision of, oh, this job is going to be a 20% pay rise. I'm going to take it. And they just look at one thing in isolation. Whereas when you look at your career, there's so many factors. So we want to look at, well, is there a good culture? Is there a good fit with my skills, my strengths? So when we make those big calls and we take risks, we can't just look at it on one thing alone.
1: Yeah, because the money is only so much. Like... I always joke with my team, and other teams. It's a two-edged sword. Like we can have good culture, good vision, good mission, but if I stop paying you, you're not going to show up. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's the other side. If you're like, if there's no good mission, good vision, good culture, and good values, well all the money in the world isn't going to solve those problems.
6: That's so good, guys. I want to thank you because I learned heaps, you know, writing the manuscript and getting it together and getting it edited and I know that everybody will enjoy it. I think my favourite thing about it is that it doesn't matter if you're like fresh out of uni or if your last 15 years of work, it's still relevant for you. Mm. The book is really universal. So I think like I really genuinely like, love this book. Yeah. I'm not a career person and I really love this book because it's so accessible and you make, you make really... I think for some people career stuff can be so tricky. Like, is, is this where I'm supposed to be? I don't know. It's, it can be such a grueling space. So you guys have made it very accessible and easy to understand. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Well, yeah. before we go on to the next segment... So Jess really project managed this whole thing. And, like, has anyone ever written an essay for university... Like a couple of thousand words. This is like 95,000 words. Like it's a PhD. I know.
2: Not maybe I not one, no. maybe not PhD quality, but it's length. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so Jess really helped, and Shell did an awesome job. And I just wanted to, from me, the Glenn James entity who I am, say thank you. Too, but, and I've got a little gift for both of you. Oh, Come on, stop Phil. Stop it. Whoa. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So thank you to, um, to Jess and Shell, and congratulations on both helping with everything that we, we've done.
6: Thank you. They're lovely.
1: My pleasure.
6: Enjoy the book, everybody.